Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. Greetings for Ex Libris. This is J. Douglas Barker. Joining me from Port-au-Prince, Haiti, is my uh, author who has written a book titled The Clash of Power and Authority. Why the Pursuit of Authority Instead of the Power Normally Leads to Transformational Change. A pretty uh, pretty full mouth, a pretty big mouthful. Joining me is author Troy Sannon. Welcome, sir, to the program. Uh, thanks. thanks a lot, RJ. Pleasure to talk with you. You have uh, an exciting book uh, that deals with some very unusual, uh, unusual uh, topic material. Tell me a little bit about it, the the background of, of who you are and how this book got to be written. Well, the uh, the book was inspired by the life of a gentleman called Jack Wall. I worked for, I worked for him from 1988 to 1992. He inspired me by his commitment to the cause of poverty. Mm. He was very committed to serving the poor. He's a man of uh, great, great integrity. Jack is a man of humble, humble beginning, simple guy, who has changed life in Canada and the United States and in Haiti. He has accomplished so much for the poor. He is now 94 years old, and he lives in uh, Waterloo, Canada. So I wanted uh, to share that experience uh, with the rest of the world. He uh, he must have the, the, he must have been an incredible guy. Just, yes, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, he's, he's an incredible guy. He's an incredible guy. Somebody who uh, left Canada, who had like businesses, um, all kind of opportunities. But uh, what was what he was interested in was to serve the poor. And he went to Haiti and uh, established an organization and involved and cooperatives and. Did a lot of changes. Uh, was so he the, uh, was he a man of wealth to begin with? Let me ask that question. Uh, well, he was he was from a very humble background. He was uh, I think he was uh, from a Russian. I don't have the detail of his history, but he was uh, from a Russian family. They came hmm. to Canada when he was about nine, and I explained some of that in the book. But uh, the book, the Clash of Power and Authority, is my interpretation of. My answer to the question of what does Jack Wall have, what does Jack Wall have that makes him different, makes him choose to serve the poor instead of going for power, instead of because he was such a smart guy, mm. could have done anything with his life, could have do great stuff, but his commitment was for the poor, and I was asking the question about it was not just Jack, but there were so many people around me and my life, my dad. Jack Wall, especially, and so many other people, I felt like those folks would have been so successful in other stuff, but they choose to be serving the poor, and you feel that they have something that other people don't have. Hmm. And then, in my reflection, I feel like they have something different than power, because power co-opt, power, uh, you could get a lot of things accomplished in your life, and with power. So, but Power co-op, power power is short-lived. Is so, uh, is it a is it's it a, a different 
is that a power and authority. Is it a characteristic of the person as uh, from a personality standpoint? Is it a commitment that they make? How would you describe that? Because there are many people with uh, with funds or seek after money, and and what you've described in your book is actually a a satisfaction of helping others. Uh, that's something that really is the motivation behind what Jack Wall did and what uh, you are aiming to do with this book. Is that uh, is that a good description? Yeah, that's a great description. The, uh, description. The, the the way that those folks uh, in life, uh, what what's important is our calling. We all have a calling, and um, the way we respond to our calling, our response to our calling, provide us with the necessary authority to get things done, to mm-hmm. get the things that we are called to do done, and we do not need. A tremendous amount of power to get them done. What we need is to respond to our calling. And guys like Jack Wall, like my dad, like so many people I know, could have used power to uh, do things for their own benefit, to and their, their interests, and become rich or get a lot of things done for themselves and their family. Yes. But they choose to be. Uh, to serve the poor, to serve the cause they are called for. And those folks, they are endowed, they are, they are giving they are giving something more important than power. You des- you've also described something else that's a characteristic of these people you admire. You say lifelong learners are ageless, and they fill the world with intelligence. Learning is their way of life. Have you found this to be everyone that is a giver, or is this unique to the peoples you've des- people you've described in your book? I believe it's unique to them because the the commitment, when you are so passionate about your commitment, when you were so committed to your calling, so you want to, to do it right. You want to do the best for your calling. So you keep learning. And every day we have to learn. Every day we face obstacles. We face uh, difficulties in life. So passion, commitment is, is, is paramount. Is the most important. It's one of the most important things that we really need to face life and, and the everyday uh, uh, obstacles of life. Mm. So to face those those situations, to face face the problems of life, and to to keep responding to our calling, sometimes that is very challenging. Maybe cause that that cause might be you might have enemies, you might have systems fighting you, you might have people. Was very powerful on the wall fighting you, but what would make you survive and become uh, successful is your commitment to that calling. And I'm sure that when you respond to your calling, you have enough authority to do so. Beautiful, beautiful. Now you have written 168 pages. Uh, obviously, from your perspective, this was a calling to complete this task. How long did it take, Troy? Well, I could not, I can't count the time really, but I think I about two years ago mm. I started thinking about it because I had that question since I was, since I, I was like a kid. I have stories in the book that happened when I was like about fourteen or something. Uh, so I've been asking myself the question: Why in the world we have so many people who have so much power? And when you look around, you don't see what they do with it. Those powers, the power that they have, 
in terms of changing people, other people's lives. Yeah. You know, in life, the most important thing in life is when you have somebody else. When you change, you have an impact on other people's lives. That's true. So if you have tremendous amount of power, it doesn't matter how much power we have. If that power cannot help transform somebody else's life, you don't you don't deserve to have it. Yes. So I kept questioning myself, why has so many people from very humble beginning, people don't have that much that many connections, don't have that much power, don't have that much money, get a lot of things accomplished for others while they are those who have a lot of power who haven't done that much for anybody. Yes. So I've been struggling for, since I was a kid with that question. And finally, two years ago, I said, I had to write that down for the next generation of people to know that you don't need power. You don't need to be well-connected. You don't need to be, to be the most powerful guy, the most powerful on this planet to get things accomplished. All you have to do is to respond to your calling and the creator would provide you with the necessary authority to uh, accomplish your mission. Very nicely, very nicely put. You have uh, obviously a, a passion that goes with this. And when you completed this and as you were writing this, did you have a particular individual or a particular uh, pos- position of an individual in mind? Or was this uh, generally for anybody that really wants to learn the way to success in your perspective? In my perspective, I was thinking, since I, I, my career, my experience in life is like, I work for businesses, I live in New York, I live in the United States most of my life. Mm-hmm. I grew up in New York, and I was born in a different environment because I was born in Haiti, and I lived in so many countries in the world. So my, what was in my mind is like, regular guys like me, might have the same questions that I have in my mind, mm. which is why this happened for so many people who are so from for so many so much humble beginning, accomplish a lot of things, change other people's lives, and so many others who have power and connection doesn't do that. So that was my question, and what was in my mind was to answer that question for those for guys, regular guys like me. Yes, but uh, because of my experience. I grew up, my, my dad was a preacher, my pastor in Haiti, and he used to go to the United States a lot and preaching in different churches. And I worked for non-profit organizations. I worked for a uh, for-profit companies, and I, I, I watch CEOs making decisions. I watch people who don't have that much power making decisions. I, I watch people who have nothing taking initiatives and change lives of a whole community, like my dad, like Jack Wall and those folks. And the person I was targeting was person, regular people like me, but also those who are interested in ministry, interested in, in businesses, those who are interested in changing, making changing in their life, facilitating transformation in the lives of communities and people. You... And I figured if they could learn, they could be aware of the fact that their calling come with a package that has authority in it, and authority would guide them, would empower them to get what they're called to do, done. Well, and be- that was that was the group of people that I was uh, targeting. Be- beautifully said. You have uh, outlined it maybe in a uh, simple uh, simple form, but expanded it uh, by saying 
uh, giving this advice. Uh, number one, have an open mind. Very, very important. Uh, be respectful of others. Uh, obviously, something that has impacted you and you have uh, incorporated into your lifestyle. Uh, you talk about also uh, in being respectful of others and, and uh, also have an open mind and you know, focus on helping others. I, I think that's a, a very important important uh, part of uh, the, the contents and the structure of your book. Uh, faith is also, at least personal faith, in your case, a, uh, a Christian faith has, uh, has certainly impacted your life, it looks like. Yes, I think I, my book is different from any other book because of the fact that I looked at authority, and that's something that you have to have a certain faith to have it. Mm. And I look at authority like something you, as something you gain from the Creator by choosing to respond to your calling. Yes. So my faith in the Creator, so the Creator, I believe the Creator creates all of us with the ability, with a mission, with a calling, and that call, and He, the Creator, provides us with the authority to get it done. And also, I, I also thought that uh, we, because we have all of this situation, we have all of the obstacles in life and have to deal with our personal life, family life, and everything. We need to be, I think, be, happiness is very important. And also respect is very important. Because, why respect is important? It's because when we respond to our calling, we, we have to deal with other folks. We have to train. We have to be a coach for people who are engaged in facilitating the the progress of our cause. We have to be to be part of communities, and respect has to be at the core of our relationship with everybody. Absolutely, because and we all have part of the Creator in us, so we do not. We all deserve respect. Not just because of us, because of the part of the DNA of the creator that we have in us that make us a being called to be constantly respected. Beautifully said. The book, again, is 168 pages, title of which is The Clash of Power and Authority. A very unique title. And my author, Troy Sannon, who has joined me from Port Prince in Haiti. Sir, my listeners need to get a copy of this, and especially those in leadership and maybe in business or who have a desire to make an impact on their world. How do they do so? By going to the website, uh, www.power-authority.com, uh, you will find it. And uh, it's on uh, Amazon. It's all over the place. It's all over the, the Internet. If you, if you type the title, you will find it. Very and, good. And um, in my, my estimation, the book is not even expensive. And what's important for me, it was not selling book. What was important for me when I was writing this book was for others to go. I believe we all have the responsibility to share our life experience with others. And I had the privilege, the opportunity to have that, the opportunity to live to experience, to work with those who have a lot of authority. And that really, my responsibility to write for others, I have a, a tremendous, a very important responsibility to, to write this book 
fathers to learn that authority is very important. And the way to gain authority is by answering our calling. Well, thank you for joining me today and sharing your story. Again, Troy Sanon, S-A-N-O-N. You can do a search on the Internet under that name and locate this book. And uh, with your passion, perhaps a book will come out in the future to uh, follow up that you have completed. The title, again, is The Clash of Power and Authority. My guest author, Troy Sanon, a consultant of social businesses, strategic management, and leadership development in his background, but now an author. Thank you, sir, for joining me today and sharing your story. Thank you very much, Jay. My pleasure for Ex Libris on Air. This is Jay Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Congratulations on getting your book published. The effort you put into your work is truly commendable. But what's next? What will happen to all the knowledge you have worked so hard to acquire to produce your book? Here at Toginet Radio, we can provide you a platform to keep your knowledge working for you through the power of podcast. The subjects our podcasts cover are as varied as the grains of sand on a beach. From life coaching, to military resources, to business success, even to the paranormal. We have a place for everyone. To get started on your next step, call Scott at 903-787-5880 or email him at scott at toginetradio.com that's s-c-o-t-t at t-o-g-i-n-e-t r-a-d-i-o dot com Welcome back to Ex Libris for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book title is intriguing. It's called A Read in the Wind. And joining me from the New York City area is the author, Thomas Griffith. Welcome, sir, to the program. Hello, Jay. Good to talk to you. Uh, in reading a little of your background and your history, you've had a challenging life and existence, if I may call it that. Uh, you have um, have penned nearly 276 pages or so. It's a it's a, a 273, I guess it is. The style of the book is different. It, it is uh, if you if I was walking through a bookstore and picked it up and uh, was curious about it, I'd look in there and think it's one long poem. Uh, tell me, uh, Tom. Actually, it's 13 different sections, and you're right, it's written in verse, so the lines will go right across the page, and there's double space between the paragraphs, but I, uh, I try to make it readable and understandable and clear, that way I'm more than just prose. Well, visually, it's very interesting. Tell me what motivated you to write the book. Uh, tell a little of your personal history and uh, how it is that we're here today and you as an author. Well, there's a couple of reasons. The first is that uh, people don't talk about a lot of things like guilt, pain, shame, and fear. They don't get deep when it comes to sex and death, and they don't seem to know anything about inner space in our life. I try to introduce the reader to these crucial subjects. I try to do so with love, not fear. I think the newscast format has to end. Also, I've been a mental patient all my adult life. That's 46 years. The general population has many misconceptions and bad attitudes about mental patients. 
I tried to correct that. There are very few books by mental patients, and certainly none of us have household names. I try to fill that void. I try to write about my experience as a mental patient. I try not to write about my experience as a mental patient, but about my consciousness as a man. You have been uh, successful in uh, working with some others, though, in setting up a nonprofit also in New York City. Can you share a little of what that is yes, and how uh, that happened? Yes, back in the 80s, I was very active in the middle patient movement. In the late 80s, some of us uh, tried to start a self-help and advocacy program. It was very small at first. We just had a couple drop-in centers, but we grew uh, Last time I heard, we had a budget of $15 million a year. Uh, I left them a few years ago because the money went to their head. But, uh, yes, uh, we did really change the system for a long time. We uh, certainly had input. I was a regular at uh, at the state capitol, testified about conditions for mental patients. And I was a regular at the uh, division of the hospitals. There was a lot of committees there. So, yeah, I did work with the system and try to make it better. Uh, the system has changed a lot since when I was first uh, involved in it back in the 70s. Uh, they've got the medication right. They've got a lot of therapy right. And you're a lot more free to uh, to be yourself and to uh, to talk to people what's going on with you rather than just being bombarded with uh, neural optics, which is uh, an incredible amount of uh, Numbing medication and other medications. Uh, it's got a lot better. There's been a lot. Of, there's been a lot of mental patients involved in it, mental patients movement across the country, in fact, across the world. And there are a number of books I have read about my mental patients uh, in the last few years, and it's getting better. I, I did read one recently called uh, I think it's called The Complete Schizophrenia by a woman who uh, went to Yale. And she was expelled from Yale back in the 90s for being a male patient. So you can see that there is a stigma and prejudice concerning us. Yes. You you, you wrote this uh, when you began to write it. Who did you think uh, would find this book fascinating? Because it is an interesting style and an interesting read. Uh, who did you have in mind when you wrote this? Well, there's a lot of people in America, a kind of a silent body of people, who've gone through uh, hard times. This book will appear to appeal to anyone who has experienced a lot of negative energy, but found they could manage it if they tried hard and saw it all as a positive experience. I'm not bitter but enlightened. I guess you could say it was against my will, but for my own benefit. And there's a lot of people saying that, even the Me Too movement with uh, sexual abuse. They're, they're saying, well, it was against my will, but I really did have an experience. I really did something that was meaningful to me in a, in a strange but necessary way. Uh, your in- illness and challenges have been uh, lifelong, pretty much. Is that, uh, is that an accurate description? Yes, it is. I was born with schizophrenia. I was... Uh, I had three traumas during my formative years, and uh, my father was schizophrenic, and his father was schizophrenic. And so uh, I guess one of the reasons I'm kind of out there in the public with this is because it was talked about over the dinner table a lot. Hmm. And so I had, uh, it wasn't the silent treatment, as bad as some people get. They grew up totally uh, not knowing anybody 
give rise to disease or be able to relate to anybody about it. So in a way, I was lucky, but in a way, uh, it only made it harder for me in some ways because I had to be so responsible. You have uh, 273 pages that uh, must have been a time-consuming effort. What do you want readers to take away from uh, from e- examining and sharing this story? Well, my basic philosophy is, is that despite the life is complex and difficult, we, we can get by if we develop coping skills, try to have a positive attitude, and make the effort to reach our full human potential. And there's a lot of people saying this uh, in, in, in books in, in, uh, in our world today that if we do develop coping skills, have a positive attitude, and try to reach our full human potential, we can get by it. We can survive it. It's not uh, a dead-end street anymore. We can go out and we can work. We can, we can do the things we want to do despite, having, despite suffering. We don't need to hide anymore. We can get out and uh, mingle in the world like everybody else, and uh, and we won't be rejected as much. Uh, you know, there, there are still are things that are difficult. You would think if somebody was suicidal, they could they could talk to somebody in their family and say, "Hey, you know, I want to have dinner with you. I want to talk about something I'm going through. Hmm. It's kind of strange, but uh, I, I really need your help." You think? You think people would help you? You think you could go to some place in our world and say, "Look, you know, I'm, I'm having a hard time right now. I need somebody to talk to." Uh, more and more, that's becoming available. But for most of the time, I was sick growing up, and and in the seventies in hospitals, uh, people did talk to you. They shunned you. They didn't want to hear about you. They didn't want to get involved at all. And that's changing, and uh, I'm trying to change it. And uh, and the world has changed. But I have to say, my book isn't about my experiences as a mental patient. It's about uh, it's about other things. Uh, it's uh, I, I can read you a, a synopsis of the book. Yes, please uh, do. Please do. Is this is kind of almost like a stream of consciousness? Would that be a way to describe it? You have mentioned that uh, in the uh, I guess the '60s, maybe you decided that you would become a hippie. I don't know if that's, uh, or maybe it was later in life. I don't know. Well, yes, I, I did become a hippie, uh, and one of my pieces about being a hippie, I took LSD, mm. uh, and I wrote about about one sixth of the book is, is that experience, and. Uh, uh, millions of people that have taken LSD, and the hippie culture has thought has profoundly and positively affected our music, social skills, dress, and literature. It really encouraged and facilitated my spiritual development. And I've heard that some colleges and clinics are experimenting with experiencing it. Uh, I, I wrote this piece here in my book. I just thought my, uh, my LSD trip would be a kind of novel and rare experience, and people might like to read it. I didn't realize that people might read it and go out and buy LSD and take it. Uh, I sort of hesitate. You know, I've lost a lot of sleep over that. I, hmm. I, uh, LSD is a very tricky substance. Uh, I, uh, I read the book by the guy who wrote it, who created LSD back in the 40s, and, uh, and he talked about horror trips on it, but he thought it was good for people that, with artistic bent, or, uh, 
Yeah, you have had some trauma in your life. How would you introduce this to someone so that they would uh, maybe understand the contents of your book? What would be the way you would describe it? Thank you. 
tracks. Absolutely. Uh, Tom, you had some challenges in writing this, I'm sure, because of the number of pages and other things. Uh, was there anything that that was a challenge that uh, you're happy this is in the past? Uh, let's put it that way. Uh, yeah, it's hard to come up with language. You, you think you can sit down and uh, there are words to describe schizophrenia. Uh, my favorite saying is the way they can be described isn't the way. Uh, the way is to make a way when there is no way. It was hard to come up with stories, characters, and conversations that enlighten others about the struggle for mental health. I try to re- rearrange the reader's mind until they are sane. Yes, it was, it was very difficult to, to find the words. The feeling was there, like, yeah, I have these problems. Yeah, I am working. Yeah, I am involved in things. But you know, to sit down and actually come up with words to describe uh, that situation was very hard to do. And it did take me a long time. Uh, geez, I I started writing it in 1978. Wow. I didn't publish it until 2008, so I guess that's, that's 30 years. Mm. Of course, I worked on other things during that time, but... Uh, it was very difficult to, uh, to to get the job done. Uh, Tom, the the writing style is certainly fascinating. Again, when you uh, leaf through it, you think, well, this is an extended poem uh, or prose. It's it's unique. Uh, I don't think there's another book in the marketplace that quite approaches the subject material or the contents the way yours does. Where do my listeners get a copy of A Read in the Wind? Yes, I, I believe. I with a publisher there, doing all they could to uh, to make it possible for people to read my book. Absolutely, they can order it in if they uh, if they request it at a local bookseller by name. A read in the wind, and by the author I'm Thomas. Sure they can. You don't think so? They can, they can buy it from a publisher though. They can buy it from like a this. That's true. This is true. Well, Tom, thank you again for joining me today and sharing your story. It's a fascinating journey you've been on and uh, certainly a different and unique style of writing that I, I found uh, found engaging. So, yeah. th- Yes, sir. Thank you for sharing that with me. Well, thank you, Jay, for having me. My pleasure for Ex Libris On Air. This is Jay Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Only once every few years does a show come along that makes you think, makes you care, makes you believe the impossible. A show featuring only the best in writing, acting, and directing. Until that show comes along, we suggest Paranoria, Texas. Thrilled to the adventures of six super-powered nerds on a never-ending quest to take over the world and to complete their collection of She-Hulk comics. Paranoria, Texas, Monday nights at 8 p.m. Central on astronetradio.com. 
Welcome back to Ex Libris. Greetings for Ex Libris on air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book title is Grandpa, I'm Afraid. And joining me from Wisconsin is educator and author Mark Grams. Welcome, sir, to the program. Welcome, Jay. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing fine. You have described a beautiful day in Wisconsin. Uh, birds and uh, all that wonderful stuff is happening. Sun is got... shining, and I'm at 64. So. Wow. That's I, everybody who's in the South, where I'm located, probably would like to move at least north for a couple of days to enjoy that weather. You ha- have become—I um, won't say a prolific author, but this is not your first uh, visit to the authorship. This particular book is uh, child-related, I'm guessing, because of the artwork and uh, obviously the content of the book. Where did the idea come from to write Grandpa, I'm Afraid? Well, it actually began with my granddaughter. She was uh, kind of afraid to go out for Halloween, and I said, what are you afraid of? Well, I don't know what's behind the mask. Mm. So I said, what else are you afraid of? And she, at the time, was 10, 9, 10 years old, and... I said, well, how about you draw me some pictures? And by the time we got done talking about it, we ended up with, frankly, a book. That's her artwork, then. I was going to ask you about that. Correct. That is all her artwork. She is my um, step-granddaughter on my youngest son's side. And she's, since she was little, she's been my third granddaughter. Hmm. The artwork is, uh, I would say, charming and uh, certainly whimsical. And you can tell that it was written, or, or I'm sorry, uh, designed by a younger person, but it fits the book schedule and the storyline just perfectly. How long did it take, Mart, to complete this particular book? It's 26 pages, it looks like, or so. Well, like I said, she drew the pictures, and I remember because uh, my wife was still alive at that time, which is a book we're going to talk about in a different set, but it was about probably three months before we got them all the pictures done, drawn, and sent to me, because she lives out in eastern Pennsylvania. Hmm. And then we started talking, and I did a little research on how children's fears are, and it's amazing the amount of psychological and sociological research out there. And then we just talked about it, we turned it into a dialogue. And uh, is her input also a major part of the storyline? Absolutely. I mean, everything we talked about was from her point of view and my trying to understand her point of view. And by the time we were done, we really kind of got a lot closer to it. Well, beautiful. Yeah, Mart, you mentioned that your spouse had, had passed away. You had been married, what, 33 years or so and uh, was a child, child, I'll say a childhood sweetheart. Uh, did, yes. that, did that uh, motivate you in any way to express your feelings in a written form, uh, in books and so on? Yes, and I have a, a poetry book that was all the poetry I had written to her over the years, and I have another one in progress. I wrote a book about six, seven years ago called Words My Grandma, Grandfather Gave Me, and it's kind of advice up to that point when you're just about re- leaving high school. This book that's coming out called Words My Grandmothers Gave Me, my wife has a lot of inspiration in that, as well as her mother. Uh, my mother-in-law, who just recently passed away a week ago, because mm. she treated me just like a son. I mean, there was no difference between me and her son. And uh, those two women did influence the next coming book as well. 
uh, those are challenges most of us would like to avoid. Uh, and it has had a positive, I will say, uh, influence on you, not only in the present, but the past and the future because of your writing skills. Did you, before that, have any desire to be a published author? Actually, not really. I, I, like I say, I published a textbook a couple, probably 15 years ago, and then upgraded some other things since then. But that first book was the words my grandfather gave me that would be what I would consider to be an inspiration to be a writer. And since that time, it's kind of like you can't shut the faucet off. <laughs> uh, that's a positive, positive result for sure. This book, Grandpa, I'm Afraid, what did your grand uh, granddaughter, uh, how did she react to it when it was completed? Has she seen it? I'm guessing she has. Yes, she has. She has. And actually, she went on a book tour with me to Miami last, uh, I think, November. Wow. And at first, she was a little quiet. But once she started seeing lots of kids come up to buy the book, she was just, she all of a sudden, it was like, snap, she became this articulate speaker <laughs> on fears of children and how you write your own books and the drawings and all that. She became... I sat back, let her do all the work. Wow, that that's a beautiful story. Now, the, the, the content of your book, a lot of children's books are full of fantasy and, and other aspects of uh, children's imagination. Did you touch on those fantasies, or how did you approach the items of fear that perhaps uh, were a well, part of that? Well, I let her pick fears. She picked, uh, I think, ten were in the book. And she had some other ones, and we combined some together, like going to the doctor, plus getting a shot, you know, or taking medicine. So some we combined. But it really came down to when I looked at these fears, you know, as an adult, we forget we had them. Yep. But I think and as an adult, we tend to think they're not that big a deal. But to a child whose mind isn't quite there yet, you know, can't really decipher between reality and fantasy, to them, that what we call fantasy or it's no big deal or it's just a fear is reality to them. Mm. And as a parent, I wanted to make sure that, as a matter of fact, the introduction actually says to parents, there are ways to deal with these things. So kind of let Grandpa and Allie, my granddaughter's Allie, kind of help you get through some of these things by using some of our examples. One of the, the ones I, I, I see constantly is the mom or dad who will say, well, there's something under the, the kid said, there's something under the bed, and the dad goes under the door. There's nothing, and all of a sudden he screams. Uh, you just yeah. traumatize that child. <laughs> True. Basically for the rest of their life. Oh, there's my. an old saying, I don't know where I heard it from, today's hysteria used to be somebody's history. Mm-hmm. Mm. Your book starts off with a fear that, uh, not a fear that I have, but a concern that I have because I am allergic to those little oh, critters, yeah. is yes. bees. Uh, I didn't know children really were aware too much of bees and their effect that it could have on a child. Uh, you uh, have also dealt with, mo of course, the monsters under the bed, which you mentioned, and in the closet. Those seem to be yes. uh, <laughs> big deals. And clowns. Now, how about clowns? How did that happen? How did she become uh, fearful of clowns? I don't know really how she became first. I think it's the mask thing, but when I did some research, it's primarily because the face of a clown is supposed to cause us to be offset. Hmm. But from a child's perspective, they're used to a face looking a certain way, and all of a sudden you see this new face, no different than uh, you see somebody in a uniform that you've never seen before, and that there hasn't been a, an experience for those children to process that facial I guess we'd say deformity or distortion. Hmm. So that's why they tend to be afraid of clowns is because it doesn't match what they 
up to this point, they know is reality. You also have uh, done a little segment on dolls, which sort of surprised me. I mean, children in general are introduced to dolls on a very young basis. and uh, Fairly some of them, young, yes. Fairly young, and, and if it's not a stuffed animal, it's usually a doll. Your granddaughter, did you find that in the children that came to the book signings, uh, were there any others that expressed a similar response to that particular item? Actually, when we did a book reading, she and I, we kind of, I read the grandpa parts and she read the um, alley parts. And there's also, we have my other granddaughter at the time because I have a new one since. Mm. Sophia, she's kind of in there and they do the dialogue. But we had so many kids well, I'm afraid of that, too. Or in, in every one of the fears we have, there was at least in a group of about 25 kids, it usually is a normal reading. Almost a third of those kids raised their hand for every fear. Really? It wasn't the same children, but every about a third of them said, oh, yeah, I'm afraid of that, too. Oh, me, too. And you hear in the back, well, they had this one kid. I'm afraid of all <laughs> Oh my! You you uh, have certainly done an imaginative approach to this particular uh, subject material. Uh, has your granddaughter? I guess she has grown somewhat since this was uh, released. Do you think that there are other fears that might be added to a subsequent book, or maybe an additional book that that will cover some of these uh, same materials? Oh yeah, you would think that as they grow, obviously our our experiences change. We go into high school, go into junior high. Now, she would be in uh, fifth grade this year, and she's a year older, which makes her pretty uh, much of a celebrity. How many other kids, you know, in her class <laughs> wrote a book, and they all want a copy, you know, and things wow. like that. But as we get older, our fears change. For example, one of the chapters I'm going to be writing about in the grandma's words my grandmothers gave me really deals with, obviously, the, the last part of our lives that death part, how to, in a mm. sense, I, I'm going to, the chapter is named how to die well. And so we have fears all our lives. So maybe there is a, another book for teenagers coming out someday when she gets a little older, she can draw teenage style instead of elementary style. Well, I think it would be a long, long, I mean, a lot of pages in that book, I think. <laughs> yes. I mean, I've got a few teenagers tend to be a lot more scared than we think. Absolutely. They they bluff their way through circumstances, yes. but uh, really carry with them some concerns and fears of uh, the present and future, for sure. What what do you want the readers to take away from this book? I know that you uh, hinted on something earlier in our conversation related to Monsters Under the Bed. Share with my listeners what you feel will be the benefit if they get a copy of this and how it will impact the adults as well as the children. Well, it is a good read-along book, especially when you get a seven, eight-year-old when they can read with you. And it's just everyday life. So it's not like it's some intellectual, psychological, blah, blah, blah book. It's, it's a practical book that mom and dads can get some little bit of examples of how do I deal with that fear? How do I deal with this one? My children are afraid of the dark. Well, how can we, how can we talk about that? That tends to give them some practical examples. You have uh, also indicated that you want parents to take the fears that children have and take them seriously and discuss it with them. I think that's a wonderful advice. That is essential. They have to realize that even though we may think they're ridiculous, we know there's nobody under the bed. I mean, I know there's been movies that make it seem like that way. But to a child, it's dark. Uh, They can't see it. 
they hear noises, and I mean, even ourselves, you hear a noise, and for a fraction of a second, you think, "What if that is somebody in my house?" Hmm. So it is. It is not irrational for them to be afraid of these things. It's just a growth period that mom and dad, you can talk to your children, talk to them, ask them how they feel. What would they do in this situation? If there were somebody in the house, what would you do to talk to them? They obviously, when they're older, they're going to say, well, I I was never afraid of that. But rationally talking to them, you're not, you're you're not giving, you're not going to give them therapy. Well, if it that's... gets to that point, then you go to a therapist. If it, the fear has become dangerous to the child or to anybody else, that's that's therapy. This is just a book for mom and dads to deal with common fears that children have at certain ages. You've been given a wonderful gift in that you were able to share this journey with your granddaughter. It's uh, it's really wonderfully done. The the sketches again are in tree are are engaging. They're imaginative. The title of the book again is Grandpa. I'm Afraid, author Mart Grams. Mart, where do we get copies of this book? You can get them on Amazon. Uh, there is also an audio version on Amazon or the website from the publisher Ex Libris. And uh, do you have a website yet? Have you developed a, a fan page? Because uh, I would think one should be in the works or has already been established. It's in the works, yes. Wonderful. i got a publisher working on that, so... Fantastic. Well, it is, uh, again, uh, if you do a search, listeners, under the name Mart, M-A-R-T, last name G-R-A-M-S, author and uh, educator, obviously, in it, it comes through in the book uh, on many levels. Thank you again, Mart, for sharing your story. Uh, we look forward to visiting with you again in the near future. Thank you very much, Jay. Have a good day. My pleasure. For Ex Libris on Air, this is Jay Douglas Barker.